Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore, and you can download that on any of your music platforms. For those of you that are new to us, um, we are about sound information, not just sound bites, and our goal is really to raise all voices, big and small, those diagnosed, those that care and serve them, advocates, researchers, and more. And today's show is live, so you can join the conversation by calling into 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. Now, before I do some shout-outs, I want to just shout-out to our listeners. You guys are fantastic. You are so loving and loyal, and we... We really appreciate you taking us into your arms and spreading the word of our work here. Um, Your likes, your clicks, and share on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and and all the other social media platforms really have made a difference in raising awareness all around the world. And that's how we build a sense of community and collaboration and, and feel some comfort in this crazy, crazy world of dementia and now add COVID into it. And it's really... um, rocking and rolling. So working together, you know, that is how we're going to win this battle. And so again, I I thank you so much. Today, we are going to have a conversation about uh, a daughter who is confronting dementia and our healthcare system here in the U.S. and is making a documentary film. And I will introduce uh, her uh, shortly here. But first, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. I adore these gatherings. They are I hate to even call them support groups because they're really, they really end up being a gathering of friends and therefore people with dementia, kind of early to mid stages and their families. You can find more information out by going to memorycafedirectory.com. They are also listing now the virtual cafes uh, because a lot of businesses aren't open. So please, please check that out, memorycafedirectory.com. I also want to uh, give a shout out to Coral Health. They have stepped up and into the fight um, against these challenging times with COVID. And they have two services that they are giving away for free during this time period. They're streaming services. One is called Music First and the other is Coral Health. You can just go to Coral Health and um, find out more information about both of those. But you know, music and religion are just so deeply inbred in us, and they, they work as great tools to calm and bring people joy, uh, especially those with dementia. I also want to uh, just shout out to some of our um, other opportunities. 
On May 28th, which is this Thursday, we're going to do our fourth sing-along with Barbara Lee Friedman. And we do that by Zoom, and then we post that to YouTube and all of our social media channels. If you can't make it, that's at 1 o'clock Central Time, so 2 Eastern Time. We also, if you go to our YouTube channel at alzheimerspeaks.com, there you can look at all the videos done by Dementia Chat, where I facilitate a panel of the true experts, both living with dementia, and they tell us um, their insights, their fears, their suggestions on how to be dementia-friendly, how to live well with this disease. You can also find my dementia quick tips, which are things I wish somebody would have told me when I stepped into this with my own mother who lived with dementia for 30 years. So let's get to our guest today. Her name is Dawn Green, and she is an award-winning producer with experience in both independent films and also television production. She is currently directing her debut feature documentary, and it's called Sheltering Love. It's about her journey caring for her mother who has Alzheimer's. And um, Dawn currently lives in New Jersey with her mother, who thankfully is still able to live at home. So welcome, Dawn. How are you doing today? Thank you. I, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me onto your show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. I, I love when, when families step up and step out and um, really, really advocate for what's going on and trying to change the face of what people think dementia is like. And um, so I can't wait to get to our conversation. But first, I, I know your mom has, has Alzheimer's disease. Um, has there been anyone else in your family or circle of friends uh, that has had the disease as well? Yeah, I, I first uh, encountered a family member um, way back in the late 80s uh, when my, my aunt, my, uh, my mother's sister-in-law in, in Norway, uh, developed, uh, developed the disease. Um, followed by her husband, my, my mother's older brother, um, and it was it was a real challenge. I think that really kind of set the tone for what we were going to go through because my mother saw what was happening to her sister-in-law and then to her brother, and she was terrified. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, it's it's a strange disease. I was just talking with uh, my group on dementia chats about acceptance and how do you how does a person with dementia get to that level of acceptance? But it's also families as well, and how that can kind of make or break you <clears throat> if you if you don't adapt and if you don't come to acceptance level that the disease exists. Um, kind of similar to the whole COVID thing going on right now. Let's talk about why does it matter to you so much to keep your mother at home. Let's start there. Yeah, I um, let's see. My mother, you know, she first started showing symptoms back in. I mean, we first knew that that she was sick maybe around 2004. That was when my um, my brother got married, and we out in Colorado, and we all talked about it then. Um, and for years, um, she managed to stay at home with my dad. Um, and I eventually, I moved back home in 2013. I, I was living out in uh, California, 
um, and I was in L.A., and I got this phone call one day from my dad that um, she had uh, she had disappeared, um, and he had no idea that she had like left the house. He just, you know, he came downstairs, answered the door, and the police were there um, with my mom, and they had picked her up um, about three miles away from home. Um, and that was kind of the moment when I knew like things were were really bad, <laughs> and something had to change, and I needed to come back come back home. Um, when I when I did so though, you know, it seemed to me like right from the start, like this is the the environment that she knows best. You know, the house. It's what was really really familiar to her. And the idea of moving her anywhere else, it just seemed, it just seemed counterinstinctual, <laughs> you know, that, you know, here you have somebody who's losing every little piece of their life, that, things that are familiar, and why take them out of this, this really familiar environment? So I knew that for my mother personally, like the best thing that I could do for her was just to try to keep her at home for as long as humanly possible. Well, and that is so true. You know, when you talk about pulling things away from people, that's one of their most valuable possessions where they've printed things for years and years and years and loaded with memories and just the familiarity of of uh, your own house. I mean, you think about <clears throat> when any of us moves, nothing, not one day thing is in the same place again. And when people are needing routines and and they need that that source of comfort um yeah i i I agree with you it's it's very uh it's an important thing to create that sense of of home if it's uh and and not everybody can keep a loved one at home i understand that Uh, i know we do after a period of time um and and, you know, and so there's no judgment there. So I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand that. Why don't you tell us what your film, Sheltering Love, is about? Yeah, well, um, it's called Sheltering Love because my mother's name is Love. So it's, you know, providing, sheltering my mother and sheltering love in, in all the different met- metaphorical ways that one um, one can imagine the term. Um, I knew when I got home, um, I mean, I, I was coming at this as a filmmaker, and it just seemed to me that you know, I, there was no way that I could I could cure her or that I could fix this, and I just needed a way to kind of process what was happening, and film was what was natural to me. So I knew from the very start that I needed to, to do something, and, and so I started, you know, filming here and there, what my experiences were, keeping a kind of memoir. Um, and eventually it sort of um, evolved into this project where it's, it's a story about my mother and myself, our, our journey together, uh, me, as a, me as a caregiver. Um, and, and I also realized that I, you know, it, it was hard to tell this from her point of view, um, but that it was easier for me to kind of tell it from my point of view and and also that maybe as a younger person that people might be able to relate to that story a little bit better 
Um, but yeah, it's a journey. It's a story of, of us uh, and what we've been going through. And then also, since my mother is Norwegian, um, at some point a friend of mine had asked, gee, I wonder, you know, if your mother had stayed in Norway, how, how her life might have been different. And, you know, lights went off. I'm like, wow, yeah, exactly. What would have happened if she had stayed in Norway? And um, so I went to Norway. <laughs> I went to Norway about a year ago um, with that question on my mind. What would, what would her life have been like in Norway? And I was really lucky to be able to, to film with different kinds of care facilities and organizations, people really open. Um, and I could see, you know, firsthand how they are taking care of people with, with Alzheimer's and other dementias in Norway. And so the question now has become, um, you know, bring that back to the United States. Maybe I've learned some things. How can we maybe incorporate that into, into um, caregiving here in the USA? And so the, the film kind of covers all of that. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's talk about what you learned on how they care for people and some of the differences that you saw between Norway and the United States and how that might be able to be applied here. Yeah, I mean, the first big difference is that Norway has a universal health care system. It's a nationally run system. It's, it's a top-down approach, and um, that's very different from what we have in the United States. And what I'm in New Jersey, so what we have in New Jersey, which I, I would say – um, is a kind of, you know, the grassroots approach. <laughs> and in Norway, they, you know, because they have this national health care um, plan, some 15 years ago, um, they took a good look, they did a bunch of studies, took a good look at, uh, at their health care plan, and they discovered that, you know, elder care was actually a huge portion of their national budget. And so they decided to come up with this sort of um, five-year plan for how to address um, Alzheimer's. So every five years they have a new, you know, dementia plan, they call it. Um, and the, they enact um, across the country the same kind of reforms. So the first five years it was like, well, what, what are the biggest issues um, and they discovered that it was informational, you know, that people just didn't know enough about the disease. And so they went on a campaign to kind of um, raise public awareness about what dementia is. Um, and then they made reforms to um, the different nursing homes um, and what kind of services they were providing. Um, I think that one of the most interesting things that they do is that every – um, every township, every municipality, there, there are 435 municipalities in, in Norway. Each one has a dementia team that's comprised of a nurse and an uh, occupational therapist. And when the doctor, you know, for example, a doctor diagnoses somebody with dementia, um, in the earliest stages they refer you to the dementia team. 
and that dementia team contacts the family, and they make an appointment to come visit you um, at the earliest point possible, and they get a complete history of who you are, what your likes are, um, what your dislikes are, you know, what kind of care you would like to receive moving forward, um, everything about you. And they check out your home. They want to see how you're living. Um, and after that, they make recommendations. Maybe they have different kinds of services uh, within the town. Maybe they realize, you know, hey, you can stay at home easily. You just need somebody to come by uh, once a day dropping off some food. Um, or, you know, maybe you are a person who needs a lot more care, and then they might, you know, move you to a different kind of living arrangement. You know, they try to work with the individual as much as possible and come up with a care plan that's adapted to you. Um, and this dementia team will follow the, um, the person with dementia throughout the course of the disease, no matter how many years that, that goes. And they can always refer back to their earlier notes and be like, oh, this is, you know, she said she really loves opera, you know, so they'll make arrangements to, to incorporate opera into your life, even after you've perhaps forgotten that. Um, and the other thing about having an occupational therapist involved is that they also emphasize in Norway that idea of, of aging at home, you know, that, that, which is what I was saying initially, like, you know, keep you at home for as long as possible. And they recognize that, like, maybe all you need is certain kinds of technology to be able to stay at home. And so the occupational therapist will take a look at your house, take a look at what you've got, and, and figure out what sort of devices might enable you to be able to, to stay at home for, for longer. Um, and the government has also, the Norwegian government has also invested a lot of money into developing these kinds of assistive uh, technologies to to allow people to be able to to stay at home, and those are those are available for everyone. It's a part of their national health care system, um, so you don't have to pay any additional costs. It's all included. Um, so that has been those were a couple of the couple of the things. Then they have some really fantastic um, daycare options. Um, I, I really love what they call the farm option. And I think we're, a lot of us are familiar with what an adult daycare center is. Um, Norway has just taken it like one step farther. So the um, farm option is, I mean, it's literally a farm. They have, I think, about 30 of them around the country. And, you know, a van goes, and, and, and this is really for people who are in the earlier stages um, and often maybe those with a younger onset Alzheimer's um, and people who are physically, you know, able, you know, but they just need some ex extra assistance. So in the morning, a van will come around, pick, pick you up, bring you to the farm. Um, and this is where you get uh, socialization and meet other people who are going through a similar thing. They get um, several meals uh, during during the day, and they do a lot of activities. Um, sometimes they're very farm-related activities, like, uh, you know, for example, maybe they um, raise uh, strawberries, you know, and they go through the whole period of, you know, the 
planting strawberries, growing the strawberries, and they harvest them, and then they make them into jams. And then, you know, they'll sell the jams at a, at a local uh, store or at a you know, farmer's market or something like that. But it's, it's, they feel like they're being productive, that they're productive members of, of society. One of the real big differences, um, I get, well, one of the things that I think I really like about what, they, what they're doing in Norway is that there's this real focus on quality of life. What seems to really matter is to try and make sure that, that everybody who has dementia, um, no matter what, they are getting a real kind of personalized, individualized care, you know, something just sort of like aimed right at, at, at them. Um, and you kind of see that in, in, in all aspects. And I, I was talking a little bit about these um, daycare centers, the farm daycare. Um, this is called also um, green farming. And I have actually seen within the United States, they've been trying to like do some of these, you know, green farming um, options as, as well. Um, I think there's one in um, Montana. I think okay. Was, I think that was the first one because I had interviewed him. I can't remember the name of it. I mean, I can't remember the origination either if it was the UK or Australia. But once again, I was like flabbergasted on how far ahead they are in terms of how they think. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, what a great concept. Why aren't we doing that with all our farms? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, I, I had asked, because people are, are, you know, when they think about innovative ways to take care of people who, who have um, dementia, you know, we, we think always about these like dementia villages. And there is actually, they're trying to build a, a dementia village now nearby Oslo um, in Norway. But typically when I would ask around what they thought of, the idea of a dementia village, um, the response I got was, well, we don't want to isolate our people with who have dementia. What really matters to us in Norway is to be able to have everybody with dementia integrated into regular society and regular life. Um, there, there, what, I, what I also saw there was this kind of like shift in attitude. I heard one, one person, um, one expert told me that, you know, we've done so much in Norwegian society to, um, for people who have physical disabilities, but we have really not given the same attention to people with cognitive disabilities. And that's how they reframe that. It's like they see Alzheimer's and dementia as a cognitive disability and that people with cognitive disabilities have rights. You know, they have rights to have access to be a part of regular life and so they they've worked very hard to make sure that you know people who especially when you're in those earlier stages and you're still very independent that you can participate in all those things you used to participate in being able to go to stores being able to go to the cafe um being able to take taxis or the bus and to feel as though you know you're safe so along those lines they also um you know, one of their one of their uh, initiatives has been this. You know, create a dementia-friendly society, and um, I think this is also a concept that that maybe came out of the UK. Um, but it's it's very much a kind of like educational movement. Um, you know, the idea being that yeah, maybe you want to be able to go to a coffee shop. So they they create these um, 
these these uh, classes that people can take um, who you know, maybe, you know, for the healthcare workers, but also, you know, they were talking about like the, the churches, mm-hmm. you know, having like the, the priests involved um, and all the shop owners, et cetera. You go, you take these classes, um, maybe all your staff takes the class and they learn how to interact with somebody who has dementia, how to help that person who has dementia. And then once they've taken the class, then, you know, they get a nice little certificate and they get, you know, a a sticker that they can put up on the window of their business that says, we are a dementia friendly uh, business, you know, please come here. And then, yeah, somebody comes in and they say, you know, I have dementia, then they know how to help that person. Yeah, well, and they don't even always have to say it. People are just more accepting and they're looking for the signs you know, so it's not about making people stand out. Um, we had somebody here um, who is a doctor, and I can't remember his last name. I'm trying to find it as as you were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, his, I, it was Cameron, and I, for the life of me, I'm forgetting it. But he, on YouTube, has a video, and it's called something like, What If Alzheimer's Was a Syndrome? Yeah. What if it wasn't an illness? What if we looked at it differently like they do? you know, that it is just a disability. And then it changes everything. Yeah. And, and you're not focused on end of life either. Which exactly. With, you know, chronic illnesses, as soon as you, you know, have one, it's like, oh, how long you got? You know, what'd they tell you? I mean, that's, that's kind of the mentality. And that typically even starts in the doctor's office. And, mm-hmm. and then it just kind of carries on from there. So I, I love that they like the, um, the disability versus the illness. Um, the controversy over the dementia-friendly village has been huge. I mean, I still think it's way more progressive than what we have here mm-hmm. in terms of really zoning in on needs and trying to recreate that outside life in a, in a safer environment because, you know, not everyone is going to... Um, appreciate or be compassionate um, and so it's kind of hard sometimes to keep them safe outside there is a um, a, a day center now in california um, by the glenner foundation called the town square that mm-hmm. has a very different look than our adult daycares and a very different feel to it which they're franchising I think it's important for us to communicate around the world and share ideas. And, um, you know, the dementia friendly, I was um, involved with um, the Lutheran Home Association. We started the first dementia friendly community in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was in 2013. And, you know, people said, well, you can't do that. It'll never work here. And, you know, I'm kind of the girl that if you tell me no, look out, because <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to try anyways, because um, I'm not worried about failure. I'm more worried about not trying to make a difference and not trying to change things. And, you know, that was a really slow go. Same like the memory cafe started those here in Roseville, Minnesota. Um, those were, uh, you know, people were, well, you can't do that. You can't have a person with dementia in their family in a, in a group together. Well, where the heck do you think they are the rest of the day? You right. know, why can't we live graciously with this? Why can't we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly together? You know, they're partners, they're family. We should be able to do this in a civil fashion. 
And um, to me, that's the only way we're going to break through some of these these boundaries. Now, what about their their healthcare efforts? And it's hard for people, I think, on the outside to really kind of like look at the United States and understand what what's going on here. Because the thing is, you know, we are we are fifty um, different states, you know, and it's sort of like every single state has its own kind of system. So that's something you have to sort of like take into take into account all the time. For me, and maybe I want I want to bring this back to what back to what was going on here and what was happening with my mother. I mean, I I um, wanted to be able to keep her at home, and very fortunately, we had or my parents had uh, long term care insurance, and because of the long term care insurance, um, they were able to. I mean, we we, we hired. Um, live in um home care aids which is wonderful because that's even hard to get now with covid i mean oh yeah all of that yeah i mean i like i said i i got back here in 2013 and for the first few months i thought oh i can handle this on my own you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do everything right and (laughs) and i very quickly discovered that you know what it takes a village to take care of somebody with, with Alzheimer's. And I just couldn't do it by myself. And so, you know, I started having to get, you know, I, I took my mother to a, to a daycare center. That was sort of the first step. And, um, and then we started hiring um, aides to come in for a few hours here and there. And then eventually got to a point where it was just much more economical to hire a full time live-in home health aid. And that made all the difference in the world. Um, but it's like that long-term care insurance is, is limited. You know, there's a, there, you only have so much money and it's designed to last, you know, for maybe three years of, you know, end of life nursing home care. It's not meant to be something that sustains for, you know, years on end. Um, and, you know, and, and then I discovered that the system in New Jersey is really sort of set up. Um, and most people who have dementia will end up in a, in a nursing home or some kind of assisted living facility. Um, and those facilities are enormously expensive and it's not covered by, by Medicare and it's not covered by regular insurance. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, 8000 to $14,000 per month. I mean, it's insane, the, the cost. Um, and usually what happens is that people have to spend down all of their savings, they sell their homes, they get rid of everything they, they own, and they end up on, on Medicaid, and Medicaid picks up the cost, you know? And when we look at it nationally, I mean, I don't think people realize that, that like, I think it's a third of Medicaid dollars across the country goes to nursing home care. So it's like, we think that we don't have a national health care system that's covering the cost of, of, um, of, of long-term care, but we actually do. We are paying that money, you know? So in the United States, I know per capita, we're spending about $10,500 per year on on, on health care for an individual. And in, in Norway, you know, with their tax structure and everything, they, they're spending around 6,500. 
you know? So they, they are spending $4,000 less per year per person than, than we are and getting so much more. And they're being, it. yeah, because they're being proactive. Yeah. Instead of waiting until things just spiral out of control. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the other thing I was going to mention too with long-term insurance is they have a lot of restrictions and definitions of how you can use those monies too. Exactly. Which, which can be a battle, especially if you bought it a long time ago and terms have changed. Um, I had one person in my um, memory cafe and I mean, they went to court over it and he, he ended up winning, but you know, it took like three years you know, to get that all sorted out. What a mess. And, you know, he was thrilled yeah. to death when he finally got a back check, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was just added stress that nobody needs to have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the, the case with us too. I, I, you know, I, I tried to be as careful as possible with that money and mind you, it, it costs less, it costs, um, you know, I want to say two thirds of what it would have cost putting my mother into into a nursing home you know um so it was considerably less to have my mom at home with a with a live-in aid um now mind you this is not and 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 i'm with you on that like i don't blame families at all because families are doing the best that they can you know and and not everybody is in a situation where they can they can keep a loved one at home and we were just really lucky um you know that we had some resources and that um and that i was here you know, because my mother couldn't be by herself, <laughs> you know, even with a live-in aid, she still needed somebody else managing the show, which is what I've been doing. And then also that she, you know, she hasn't had any real behavioral problems. She's very happy and pleasant and easy to, to get along with. So it's, you know, she hasn't had that kind of aggression that then some people can have where you know you can't keep somebody who's violent at home I mean it's a whole different different kind of scenario but we were really lucky um the thing is though that that money well we had to hire an agency I mean that that was one of the the requirements of the long-term care insurance is that we had to go through an agency um so we did that for years but then the money ran out this last year and so I decided that I would try to hire privately since we're now paying out of pocket out of my mother's remaining savings. And I'm trying to draw that out so that, you know, it can keep her at home for like, you know, hopefully I can keep her at home for another three years, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I decided to hire privately and I, um, that was a real experience trying to figure out how to do that. And I, I worked on that in December and January and finally, you know, hired somebody all on the books, mind you, mm -hmm. I am, I'm doing everything, um, following all the laws, because I also know that if she does run out of money, then she'll have to go, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a law abiding citizen to begin with. So it's like me, but if she runs out of money, then she would have to go on Medicaid. Oh, yeah, and, you got to track every nickel. Yeah, and Medicaid will look back, and if they see that, like, gee, you have this money that we don't know where it went, you know, she wouldn't be eligible for Medicaid. So it's like it had to be this way. Um, and, you know, I hired a new person, um, a private home health aide in February. She started about February 15th of this year. 
then, you know, I was following what was going on with, with COVID-19 and I, I, I speak Italian. So I was following the Italian press and, uh, and getting really scared. And so I started stocking up on some supplies and thinking, okay, you know, we're going to have to like hunker down here. Um, and then in March about, uh, the third week of March, um, and it was just, at that point, it was just me and the aide and my mom, and we weren't getting any other, like, outside contact. Mm-hmm. Um, but the aide, one day, she said, you know, I have to run over to the drugstore to pick up some stuff. I really have to do that. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm here with mom, you know, see you in a couple hours. She's like, okay, bye. She gets into, the, uh, into her Uber and takes off, right? That was the last I ever saw of her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she, she disappeared. She ditched him. <laughs> she ditched him. She didn't even, she, she left all of her stuff behind. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I don't know what happened, but she fled. So um, I ended up that evening, I mean, I, I started to get really concerned about what, what had happened to her. So I actually put in a report with the police because I thought, you know, maybe she's, hurt somewhere in a ditch and um but uh they they did track her down and and that was it she just she 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 sent a message back saying that she quit and I could donate all her stuff so <laughs> wow. that was March <laughs> wow yeah and um at which point I was just too afraid to hire anybody else to bring in somebody new in the midst of, I mean, we're only, you know, 30 miles from New York. We're really like ground zero for this whole coronavirus in uh, the United States. And um, I was like, okay, well, I'll just take care of my mom on my own, at least for now, and we'll see what happens, uh, at least for the next week. You know, I was just going week by week. And um, before I knew it, it was like, you know, 30 some days had gone by and, uh, it was really hard. Um, I thought I was going to have a complete breakdown. You know, it's a lot of work. It's, I mean, it's a lot of work taking care of my mom. That's definitely a full-time job. Um, but I couldn't do that and also take care of the house and take care of my own work and do, I mean, take care of the cats, everything. It just was, it became virtually um, impossible. Well, you don't, you don't have sleep and you're worried all the time and your to-do list never ends. And, yeah. and then on top of COVID, then you're kind of shut in to boot and things. So, I mean, I'm hearing that from so many people, um, you know, that are, are just really struggling because they're, they're, the resources just aren't there. And I think that is um, one of the true dangers that we have here in the U.S. You know, we have NAPA, which is the National Alzheimer's Plan Act, and they've been around for years and years and years. Um, but to be honest, for how long they've been around, you know, to me, the impact uh, hasn't been that great. And still, a lot of people don't even know what NAPA is. Um, but it's more I hate to say it's more organizational based than family based or people with dementia based, though they've they've started to change that because 
grassroots have been demanding that, you know, of them. And we have the now the Dementia Friendly America, which makes it sound like we're all on the same boat. But like you said, we have 50 different states with how many different counties in each state and everybody deals with it differently. And there's not funds like over in the UK. I mean, the prime minister, they have their team set up. You know, and this is their charge. This is the only thing they do is to make sure, you know, stuff is moving forward and they fund it. And, you know, we don't have that luxury. Most, most everything here is, um, is done on a volunteer basis. You know, the, the, there's some grant money to initially start off. And then, but then what happens after that grant money has gone? You know, especially if people are used to getting paid and then aren't um, for those services, a lot of people drop by the wayside. The memory cafe is open and then they close. The dementia friendly community is open, then they close. I think it's getting better because more people are feeling the need and they want to stay involved and they see that the movement is, is going someplace. But I think we really have to harness the heart and the stories to really push it forward. And not so much this criteria in a box that's going to work every place you put it down. We're people. We all have different needs. We, and, and every community has different resources. And there's so much creativity, I think, too, that we've kind of squashed in the U.S. Um, that that's not necessarily acceptable to try something new. I know when I started out, it sure wasn't. I got a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. and, and I get a little these days, but most people go, oh, gosh, how'd you do what you did? And I'm like, because I believed it could be done. That's as simple as it was. I, I believed we could do better. And I'm not saying what I've done is the best um, by any stretch. Everything is meant to be improved in my eyes. But it's a start, you know, it's a, it's a start. And I think, I think we're late to the gate. Mm -hmm. on, on this whole realm. And I think families are suffering tremendously because of it financially, physically, emotionally. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can do better. How do you just get any kind of care, right? Um, but in Norway, that's not an issue. They're not thinking about like how people are gonna afford the care because it's all paid, it's all covered. You know, now they're just really focused on quality of care and quality of care means, you know, meeting the needs of the individual so that, you know, no two people are treated alike, you know? Well, and what a, you know, I mean, there's so much stress with caregiving as it is. And when you don't have to have that financial burden, oh, I, I, I that's huge. Yes. That's, that's absolutely huge. What about, um, what about what's going on in New Jersey itself in terms of trying to make New Jersey dementia friendly? Are you involved in anything there? Yeah. And it, so that, you know, coming back from Norway, I, I, I just really love that idea of like a, the dementia friendly community. And I'm like, well, this is something that we could start in my own hometown. You know, I thought it was like, well, we'll, we'll make a dementia friendly, uh, uh, dementia friendly hometown. And, um, but then I started, uh, I started doing a little bit of research and I realized, Hey, you know, there, there already exists this movement, this dementia friendly America. So I, I connected with the dementia friendly America and I, 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 I found out that there is already, there, there are people who are already working on this. Um, 
especially in southern New Jersey. Uh, and so we are, and, and people seem to be working more at the countywide level. So now um, in my own community, we're trying to see what we can do um, to create you know, I'm in Morris County to create a, a dementia-friendly Morris County, and and we are building, um, we're building a task force, and and we are hoping to like really, you know, take some action um, now. Um, everything kind of got put on hold because of the coronavirus. It's just it's what do we do, <laughs> you know? But we're so we're trying to work around that. What I wanted to ask was, um, who are some of the key players that you're working with in New Jersey with the Dementia Friendly? Yeah, so um, what I discovered is that there really is a lot already going on. You, you know, um, there are a lot of people who are working in different areas to do stuff for people with dementia, um, like memory cafes. You know, we've got memory cafes and we have support groups and, and you know, we have, um, you know, all kinds of different types of services, but there's there. What's sometimes missing is the communication between each other, um, and also like that outreach to families. Because I know when I first got here, like I, I felt so alone as 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 a daughter of of somebody with with Alzheimer's. I didn't even know how to start. You know, and and. That's where it's like what we need to do is kind of corral all of these different services and try to find a way to like reach out to the community and let people know that, you know, you, you aren't alone. So I, I've been in touch with the, you know, the Alzheimer's Association. Um, we have a couple of other organizations, Alzheimer's New Jersey. Um, the, uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce, I know uh, a lot of people, the Chamber of Commerce, there are various uh, politicians in the area. I mean, there's a lot of interest, the sheriff. I mean, there a lot of people who want to do something. They just, you know, they just need somebody to kind of like <laughs> bring it all together, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that that's pretty much everywhere you go. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I started Alzheimer's Speaks way back when was mm -hmm. because it was just like this is asinine that people don't know the resources yeah. you know and and i'm not a resource directory by any stretch but i try to lift people up and give them hope and ideas that yeah again, you're not alone things can be done differently you don't have to do it exactly this way because that might not work for you and your community or your loved one um, or your finances or your schedule or whatever uh, you know, then adapt it, but do something, yeah. do something, because everybody at every age can make a difference, and I think we need to do more reaching out to children as well, you know, when I stepped in here in 2009, um, you know, one of my frustrations was they were still portraying people with dementia as um, basically end stages, right, and, and I'm like, no, that needs to change, you Ask people with dementia to come down in front of Congress, show the younger faces, show, you know, what is really happening out here. And um, yeah, there's, there's just so many different things we can do and so many platforms we can use to do that. Like your film is a, you know, that's a great, a great platform. You know, some people don't want to read a paper, you know, they want to, they want to see and feel what's really going on. They want to hear from real people. 
Yeah. And, and that's powerful, powerful stuff. You know, when we're telling a story using different modes. Oh, I want to mention, I did look up, it's Cameron Camp on YouTube. Okay. That has that video mm -hmm. about what if Alzheimer's was a syndrome and it just really makes sense. And it brings, brings back that point you were talking about. Norway looks at it as a disability versus an illness. But I also want to make sure people get your information and, and if you can tell them how they can help you because the film is not finished at mm -hmm. this point. And, um, and so why don't we talk a little bit about how they, how they can reach you. Um, I know you have a trailer and I put that in the blog as well and a link on the, the radio show for that for people to be able to go see. Um, but, but talk about your goals and how long you think this is going to take and how people can support you in making this film. Yeah, we, we really rely on, on the support of, of, of people to get, to get the film made. It's, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's expensive to, to pay the crew, you know, and that's, uh, it, you know, we're, we're, we, we will definitely need, need some help. Um, I have a, a website, www.shelteringlovefilm.com. And there's some information there about how people can uh, donate to, to the project. Um, that would, that would mean a lot. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I'm going to mention that most people don't think of, and this might seem kind of morbid, but people do pass on from this disease and people want to know how they can help and how they can support. And taking donations through, through a funeral is one way that is really pretty easy to do because you're not, you're not asking. It's just something in the obit that you, you add in and um, you can really make a difference in a big, in a big way. So I just want to throw that out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and not that you can't donate when you're alive because you're sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we, we are applying for grants and we're, um, we're doing everything that we can to, to get this film done. And we're hoping that, you know, we're really in the middle of production. Um, it would be interesting right now to be able to follow up with some of the nursing homes in, in Norway that we had visited uh, a year ago and to see how they're doing now after, after COVID and to kind of, or in the middle of COVID to see what, what's changed. You know, we, uh, there's, there's a lot still to be, to be done. Well, I really appreciate your time, Dawn. This was a, a fun conversation. Again, people can go to shelteringlovefilm.com at shelteringlovefilm.com for more information. And if they want to email you, I would imagine there's a contact button on the website that they can get to. Well, thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much for having me here. And for our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. Please feel free to share this uh, far and wide. Uh, Dawn could use your help. We don't have enough films about real life with dementia. And this is a, a nice way that you can help at no cost is just by sharing this. And if you um, are able to donate, um, please consider doing that. And for additional services, you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com and see a lot of our initiatives and projects there um, or visit our YouTube channel. We have lots of resources there as well. So thank you all and we will talk soon. Bye now.
Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>